It's lovely to see so many criminals' uh, faces again, which is including Peter Malikin, who has been living in Norway, Sweden, remote parts of the world, um, sawing wood and drawing water, I gather, and also writing an important book. Uh, I asked if this the series of five lectures on the theme of Plotinus are from the book. Peter said no, but this is a different approach relating Plotinus, a figure from the past, to the future, which of course the timeless always relates to the future, because timeless is always present. And of course, Peter was with Temenos from the very beginning, and it's, we have lost him for really rather long time, much too long. So, Peter, it's wonderful to have you back. Thank you very much. And I'll ask you to give uh, the first, I don't know that the first lecture has a title. I don't know. I'll see if I thought of one. Did no, you? just says Plotinus in the Modern World Plotinus 1. Plotinus in the Modern World 1. Yes. Well, I hope you all come to Plotinus in the Modern World 5. <laughs> <laughs> what about the ones in between? Yes, look, it, it really wouldn't have done to try and uh, give an account of this wretched book, which is fairly long. It does cover the, these issues, but it covers a lot more, and it's got a consistent argument running all the way through it, and I mean, you really can't produce books as lectures. They are extremely tedious, and lectures are quite tedious enough by themselves without having a, uh, a printed page somewhere behind them. So I'm not uh, tied into the book, though what I am doing is, to some extent, what is there in the book. That will do no good at all. I have an absolutely devastating effect on machinery. It just breaks down as soon as I look at it. Um, the, I suppose the first thing I ought to, to say is to clarify my own position. I do not pose as an expert on Plotinus. I am not a Greek scholar. If you want that kind of approach to Plotinus, go to the Greek scholars who are experts and uh, join in the worship of experts that exists in the modern world. My own approach is rather different. If I'm an expert on anything at all, which I rather doubt, and I doubt the category of expert anyway, I dislike it intensely, but if I am, I'm an expert on consciousness. And Plotinus was a much greater expert on consciousness. And uh, the reason why I am willing to uh, treat Plotinus at all is double, first of all, that I have found him very useful for many years, 30 years or so, I've lived with Plotinus and uh, have used him in my own attempts to get somewhere towards the level at which he appeared to be permanently lodged. And the other thing is that I don't know whether any of you have operated as translators, but I learnt when I was for a while a professional translator it's not quite a fate worse than death, I imagine, but uh, it's near it, um, that if you translated a work knowing the language from which you were translating and not knowing what the work was talking about, it didn't matter how good your scholarship was, you'd make a mess of it. If you had, uh, whatever it was, something on gearboxes and you didn't know anything about gearboxes, what you translated would be rubbish, but if you took round what you translated to the local garage and got hold of a mechanic and said to him, look, what is this? He would tell you, because he didn't know the language from which the thing came, but he did know about gearboxes, and he could tell you what was 
what must be in question. And when you translate a text, you never translate a text, you always translate an understanding of a text. And the understanding of a text depends in large part on, if you like, your own level of consciousness. It depends upon the mode of consciousness you are operating in. Now, I'll come back to this, because this is one of the things that Plotinus is extremely clear about, and he deals with it again and again, and it's extremely relevant to the modern world. Um, and that's the, 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 this is the second point. When I came to reread Plotinus for the first while, time for at least some months, I was struck by how good Plotinus was and really how silly all the wrangling that was going on in the modern world was and I thought, well, why? I felt anyway, why not just chuck the modern world and talk about Plotinus, but I don't think this will do. You cannot get rid of the modern world, you shut your eyes to it, it will not go away. Attempts to retreat into the past are a waste of time, you may as well give them up before you start. We are moving into the future. And the arrow of time appears to be inflexible in its direction as far as we are concerned, and all we can do is deflect its course slightly. And it would be best, to, it seems to me, to pick up the aspect of the European tradition which existed at the time of Plotinus and then dropped out. I always date it, perhaps unfairly, from the time of the shutting of, down of the... Platonic Academy by Justinian. From that time onwards, spirituality ceased to be a matter for philosophical discussion with no holes barred. It became instead something to be discussed within the framework of institutionalized religion with, of necessity, enormous amounts of political pressure on the whole discussion. And you might as well this is an exaggeration, but at least it brings the problem home. You might just as well try a free discussion of philosophy, say, Nazi Germany or Stalin's Russia. It doesn't work because they, there are overwhelming political demands being made that curtail the discussion before it starts. And I think this was an enormous loss to the West. And that the, the fact that Plotinus did have this kind of freedom is one of the reasons why I like him. Um, the next thing is that because Plotinus does deal so much with epistemology, the nature of knowledge, how you know what you think you know, why you don't know it, uh, he does gear into the modern world where the contemporary religion is, of course, not the, what were traditionally regarded as the religions, but much, much more science, and I'm not the only one that's saying this by any means, an awful lot of people have pointed this out, including people like Fire Ardent, who is a very distinguished philosopher of science. And um, the, uh, the epistemology of science in a popularised version is infallible dogma. Of course, when you get anywhere near it, it's not infallible. Uh, I suspect it is very often dogma, but it is full of epistemological holes as a, an overt system of knowledge, a complete system of knowledge. And I will come back to that uh, through the lectures, and especially in the fifth lecture. It, there's no point in trying to launch into that at the beginning. I think one's got to have Plotinus behind one before one deals with that. But that's, that's another reason why I wanted to deal with Plotinus. Now, the, the final thing in this introduction is that I am an intellectual, I suppose, I can't help it, you know, don't shoot the pianist, he's doing his best. 
uh, if I start going too fast or getting too abstract or getting too difficult so that it's difficult to follow me, would you please protest? I have some sense of how people are reacting, often quite a good sense, actually. Telepathy is not a myth, but it is not infallible. And um, I would not wish to leave people bemused and baffled. Uh, It's familiar to me, all this stuff. And so it's rather like talking, in a way, to a computer expert about computers. I mean, you know what they're like. And not, not computers and experts come to them. But uh, it's impossible. You pick up a computer manual and can't understand a word of it. It's written for people who understand computers so well that they have no need for the manual, as far as I can see. Um, and I could be in the same position, and I don't want to be. I, I, I do want to communicate. It's desperately important, it seems to me, that communication should take place. Um, And uh, where this communication is concerned, I'm not trying to be intellectually clever. I can't help being intellectual, but I'm not after that sort of thing. If you're going to understand Plotinus, you cannot do it. I could quote from Jakob Burma. He said, uh, when you were reading his texts, you should not start from the outside with sharp speculation and uh, ratiocinative thought, but instead you should use the higher aspect of the mind. The intuitive aspect of the mind is perhaps the nearest you can get to it in modern English, but it's the aspect of the mind which is deliberately killed out over decades by the process of education. So I'm afraid that to some extent throughout the world, and certainly in the modern West, it's virtually dead. And it's a bit of an effort to allow it a chance to get going. So if you're going to do that, you have to work with your mind. And I don't know whether you've ever thought about this. I mean, there's an old academic teacher, I'm familiar with the problems of this, but I used to say to my students, um, of course you don't think like this, but you have to produce an argument in an essay starting from the beginning and going in a concatenated form. There's a series of steps right the way through to a conclusion at the end, and each step has got to follow from the one in front and lead to the one afterwards. And that is the way you present it, because that is the cultural norm in the modern West, but it's not the way your mind works. You know perfectly well, if you look at your mind, you don't think that way. You think by feeling, working your way towards something. And if you disturb that by too much ratiocinative thought in an early stage, you stop it dead. You have to leave your mind alone, as Thurber said, and let things emerge. So um, if at first, provided you're sort of with the flow of it, if at first it doesn't all make sense, don't worry, just leave it alone. Um, it will come to, it will come together at a a slightly later point. Uh, You don't have to sort of grasp at everything as it flits past. (coughs) Now, I wanted to start... Do do any of you know Fire Ardent, by any chance? Very entertaining man, philosopher of science, extremely tolerant, uh, very well informed, very sharp, very sharp indeed. Uh, and he doesn't stand for nonsense, and he won't be put upon. Uh, he did one thing once, which he greatly regretted afterwards, I believe, but uh, he, there was a book published on astrology by a series of scientists, including Nobel laureates, and they all attacked astrology in a very savage fashion and ruled it right out of court, and he read this book. And he doesn't happen to believe in astrology himself, but he thought that they were being quite dishonest in the way in which they were trying to deal with it. That he thought, first of all, none of them knew anything at all about astrology. They'd never looked at it. They'd never 
seen it in its own right, and they were using their prestige to brush it aside. This is the way in which, of course, these things work. Oh, you know what's on Actually, that kind of approach. And so the consequence of this was that he wrote a, a very savage attack on the book and analysis of it, pointing out how unjustified this book was. Um, and the result of that was that every uh, astrological freak in the whole of the American continent began to pounce on him, and I think he regretted it very greatly, because he said he, he has no time for it at all. He was just trying to sort of establish honesty. But, I mean, this is the kind of person he is. And uh, he defends voodoo in passing and various other things. He said, you know, have a look at it before you dismiss it. Don't just use it as a word to get rid of things. And I would say the same of science, you know. There's the, in the Temenos circles, there is sometimes a tendency to dismiss science as if it were a kind of evil religion, which it isn't. We owe so much to it. But it does need to be put in its place, it seems to me. And what its place may be is a matter of opinion, but I don't think it's where it is now. Now, I'm going to start from Firearmed, and Firearmed, he's, talk, uh, he's talking at this point about inconsistencies in scientific theories and the way in which theories which are unsubstantiated and have been, in fact, disproved are extremely valuable and things of this kind. He's blowing up the epistemology of science. But he goes back and talks about Parmenides, if that rings a bell. And this is what he says about um, Parmenides. The first, and to my mind, the most important example of an inconsistency of this kind is Parmenides' theory of the unchanging and homogeneous one. This theory illustrates a desire that has propelled the Western sciences from their inception up to the present time. The desire to find a unity behind the many events that surround us. Today, the unity, is sought in a theory, the, the unity sought is a theory rich enough to produce all the accepted facts and laws. At the time of Parmenides, the unity sought was a substance. Thales had proposed water, Heraclitus, fire, Anaximander, a substance which he called a pyron, which could produce all four elements without being identical with a sim single one of them. Parmenides gave what seems to be an obvious and rather trivial answer. The substance that underlies everything that is, is being. But this trivial answer had surprising consequences. For example, we can assert that First principle, being is. And that second principle, not being is not. Okay, so far. Now consider change and assume it to be fundamental. Then change can only go from being to not being. But according to the second principle, not being is not which means that there is no fundamental change. Next, consider difference and assume it to be fundamental. Then the difference can only be between being and not being. But, second principle, not being is not. And therefore, there exist no differences in being. It is a single, unchanging, continuous block Parmenides knew, of course, that 
people, himself included, perceive and accept change and difference. But as his argument had shown that the perceived processes could not be fundamental, he had to regard them as merely apparent or deceptive. This is indeed what he said. Um, thus, in, and he, he ties it in with science and the contrast between real science and uh, unreal uh, realms of, of the everyday experience and of emotion and so on. Um, and he goes on to link it up to relativity theory. But you get the line of the argument. It's clear. You've been able to follow it through that. Anybody lost in it? Uh, good, right. Now, you see what he's done the, in this argument... First of all, Parmenides has moved from the idea that the fundamental reality is being, uh, whatever that may mean, we'll come back to that, uh, to Maya. It is the equivalent of Maya. That is to say that the changes which one perceives around us in the world of flux are not ultimately true, not ultimately real. But they are obviously there. So in a relative sense, they are real. And that is exactly what, uh, say, Shankara said of Maya. He said of this world, you, and, that, and that is in the, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the Basha, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You're in the commentary on, on, on the Brahma Sutras. Um, he said in that, uh, that you cannot call this world unreal. The idea that Maya means that this world is illusion is nonsense. It's a gross false sort of simplification of the thing. You cannot say that this world is unreal, but you can't say it's real either. It is Maya. Or as Jakob Burma put it, it completely independently, the created world is a magia, a work of magic. It is deceptive. It is not what it seems to be. And one has the, um, an interesting parallel there, which, uh, again, um, I may pick up later, I'm not sure. The second thing is, did you notice the use of the word block? In, 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 uh, it's an odd word, isn't it? It's a very odd word, because a block is a thing. In other words, firearms, as a philosopher of science, appears, according to the vocabulary he is using, to be thinking in terms of a subject-object distinction and talking of the ultimate reality, as indeed he said, as a thing. It was either fire or it was water. Well, why couldn't water be a symbol for something other than simply water, um, and similarly with fire? And anyway, what do you mean by these terms, ultimately, especially if you take the, um, the, the, the system of the elements in, in Greece, or their equivalent, the five elements in India? Uh, by using block, he has turned Parmenides or correctly understood Parmenides, I do not know which and I don't think anybody does, as positing the ultimate reality as an objective reality behind that, behind the objective world around you. And the, the third thing is that in using one, he uses the one, this one homogeneous block, this one whole, he uses it as a numerical distinction. Do you see what I mean? He uses it as one which is in principle part of a series, one, two, three, four. It is a unity. 
it is an entity which is a unity. As an entity which is a unity, it is certainly not infinitude. Okay, yeah? Oh, Feyerabend, yes, philosopher of science, Austrian fellow. He works in Russia and uh, Switzerland. He's uh, not in Russia, in, in uh, California and Switzerland. Yeah. He mentioned that, um, originally, that single substance or, or whatever it's been. Um, yeah. He, that's, how, that's how he understands it. Why is that necessarily an object? Well, it isn't. Exactly. It isn't. That's the point I'm trying to make. But by using block, Feyerabend tends to imply that it is an object. It's exactly the point I want to make. I don't think it is an object, nor do I think it is knowable as an object. And anyway, uh, the, the word being has got certain difficulties attached to it, of which Plotinus is very aware, and of which also, if you're into sort of things like Christian mysticism, Dionysius the Areopagite was also aware. Um, uh, well, I'll come back to that. I don't, want, I don't want to get sidetracked on that at this point. But no, you're right, absolutely right. Now, the second thing I wanted to pick up, and I haven't had time to reread the Parmenides, I had to leave my Plato behind in Stockholm, it's too heavy to carry, but um, I did get o- over the phone the final paragraph of Plato's dialogue, the Parmenides. I don't know whether you know it. It's a late dialogue. It's extremely difficult. Ordinary philosophers either strap their hands at it and say, this is so trivial... It says something which is so slight that we can't really see why Plato should ever bother to say it. Or they tend to say this is complete baffling nonsense. This is just words. It doesn't mean anything. Um, uh, and and you, you tend to get these two extreme reactions. Um, again, I'm not an expert in the latest uh, studies of the Parmenides. These things may be shifting now. It's about time they did. But it's a very, very interesting dialogue. And the main... It's not like a dialogue, not like the earlier dialogues. The earlier dialogues in Plato are dialogues. There are several characters talking to one another and arguing one against the other. In this dialogue, there's really only one speaker, and that's Parmenides. And he comes in as a terrifying, august old man, full of wisdom, and everybody is deferential to him, rather scared. And they ask him to talk about the one, and it's basically the thing, it's on one and the many, that's the usual way of understanding it. Anyway, they ask him to talk about the one, and also about the, the process of dialectic. And he starts saying, well, if you're, going to, if you're going to understand the one, then you must conduct the argument from all the possible premises. And he, he argues from the basis that the one is, and he argues from the basis that the one is not. And then he goes back and re-argues and goes back and re-argues. And he comes to a series of completely contradictory conclusions. Completely contradictory conclusions. And then at the end of the the dialogue, um, this is what he says. Thus, in sum, we may conclude that if there is no one, there is nothing at all. To this we may add the conclusion, it seems that whether there is or is not a one, both that one and the others alike are and are not, and appear, and do not appear to be all manner of things, in all manner of ways, with respect to themselves and to one another. And to that, Aristotle, who is a sort of bystander in the dialogue, replies, 
most true. Now you can see, you can see how baffling that is. I mean, it, it, it is an extraordinary sort of statement to come out with. Uh, but it, it, why, why, why did Plato do this? Well, um, let me take some of these points. First of all, the are and are not. What is happening in this is, it seems to me, that firearmed is dissolving the categories. What he is, uh, sorry, not firearmed, he's, he's, he's dissolving the categories that were firm and concrete in firearmed. Uh, Parmenides is dissolving these categories, and uh, it, the work is really a comment on categorization. That's one of the aspects of it. It's a comment on what happens when you try to know things on the basis of categories. And uh, you can compare this, if you like, uh, with Costco on fuzzy thinking. Have you come across this thing? Fuzzy thinking and parallel programming and all this sort of stuff. It's fuzzy sets and fuzzy thinking. It's had a lot of influence in uh, modern electronic circuitry. But uh, he draws a rather crude, I think, distinction between what he calls Aristotelian binary logic, in which there is a yes-no. Now, come on, answer me, yes or no. Well, what are you going to do with that? Usually you have to say, well, yes up to a point, and no in certain circumstances, and so on. You can't answer in this way. So he opposes to that a sort of gradualist approach, which says, okay, well, no 20% and yes uh, 80% or vice versa. Um, and uh, he claims that this is being tremendously oriental. I won't go into my quarrel with that one. I mean, he bases himself on Soto Zen, uh, and in Soto's... I seem to be going into it. Look, in Soto Zen, the Dharmakaya, the, um, the, the, the um, body of reality of the, the, um, of the, the Buddha, the sort of universal cosmic Buddha, is equated with samsara, equated with becoming, whereas in Rinzai Zen, it, it isn't, it's permanent. It is not part of the flow. And um, it's only in Soto Zen that you can get room for the sort of thing he's saying. So he's equating his his or his East is a certain aspect of Sino-Japanese tradition and very much a certain aspect of it. I mean, if you go into Buddhist logic, you don't get the kind of statement that he's saying that rather than yes and no, you have yes up to a point and no up to a point. You instead, instead get the sort of formulations you get from the Buddha in so many of the scriptures. You know, it is not true to say yes. It is not true to say not yes. It is not true to say both yes and not yes. Not yes. It is um, not true to say neither yes nor not yes. In other words, you get the sort of thing I think the Parmenides is up to a destruction of logic as ultimately valid. Ultimately valid. There are many kinds of validity, but the ultimate validity is, is the one that is in question. It's very useful. You jolly good thing to be logical. Uh, I'm told it even enables you to deal with bank managers. I would, I wouldn't know. Um, the uh, the next thing is that the, the Parmenides was by Plato put forward as a dialogue which was dealing with the first, the first stage of dialectic. Now, you think how dialectics normally uh, interpreted nowadays. I mean, you know, if people start to speak about dialectic, they usually think of Marx 
and Marx getting dialectic via Hegel, and they think of the Hegelian uh, uh, sequential dialectic of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. If you go to this as the basis of dialectic, that becomes nonsense. Dialectic must be something other than that, because you cannot get at dialectic itself except through the first stage, if I am correct in this interpretation, of destroying the ultimate validity of the logical categories. So you've got Plato going somewhere quite different and meaning something different by dialectic. And of course, this it would not be picked up from the ordinary modern point of view, because from the ordinary modern point of view, something other than logical linear thinking is not there, doesn't exist. It's there all right in, say, traditional Indian thought, I don't know how much longer it's going to survive in India. It was there in the Buddhist traditions, it was there in the Christian traditions earlier on, and it was there in the philosophy of Plotinus, very clearly enunciated. But uh, it is not there in modern thinking. They regard anything other than logic as feeling, and they regard feeling as suspect. It's dumped in the wash house to be cleaned up and represented as logic. Um, I'll return to this via Plotinus, but it's, uh, Plotinus claimed he followed Plato. Modern Platonists tend to claim that he didn't. They tend to claim that he started Neoplatonism and went his own way. I think this is not entirely true. It's much less true than they would hold. I think he did follow Plato. He followed one side of Plato's teaching, and that's why I picked up the Parmenides. Now, uh, how, is, how are you bearing up under this? Is this all right so far? Okay, you're, 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 you're not sort of gasping for air yet. Or got beyond that stage. <laughs> you can moo at me from the other world, if you like. One of the other worlds, anyway. Um, the uh, next thing is that this kind of approach has a... or reflects back on the understanding of what philosophy is in a way which I find vital to the development of the future. Um, if I could put it this way, for Plotinus, and I think for Plato, philosophy was the love of wisdom leading to human integration. If you were a philosopher, you should be an integrated spiritual being, fully at one with the total cosmos and that which transcends the cosmos, and intensely happy. You spoke of the divine light. The divine light should stream about you from morning to night and all night too. How many modern philosophers, firearms included, are in that position? How many of them even think that it is possible to be in that position? If you start off by sitting in a dark room with the doors closed, you are not going to be able to understand Plato and Plotinus when they start talking about light. And it doesn't matter how acute your logic is, and it doesn't matter how much Greek you know, you'll get nowhere. Because you do not allow for the possibility of their meaning something other than you take them to mean. And we all do this. I mean, this is natural. But it's time it stopped there are too many problems being created by this limited approach. And uh, the sort of thing that one gets 
uh, is the kind of comment that is made by Costco in this fuzzy logic thing. Uh, he's very interesting, but like all, I suppose, young clever men, he tends to be a bit full of himself, shall we say. And one of the things he says in passing is, science has all but ended astrology and philosophy and religion. They live on the shells of what they once were. All I can say is that if science continues the way it is, they won't live for long. Uh, we have got to get them back, and it's got to be got back, in my view, not by a return to religion with all its horrors, but by a return to spiritual philosophy, not by a return to faith, but by a return to direct experience, reality. Uh, were I a Christian, my patron saint would be doubting Thomas. If there is a spiritual, a divine reality, I want it, and I want it here, and I want it now. And it's got to be palpable. And I'm always suspicious of belief. You don't get people going around saying, I believe in air. They just breathe it. If they breathe it, they don't need to believe in it. It's there. And that's what one wants. That, if you're going to take faith, faith in that sense, not faith in the sense of commitment, as Jakob Berman would say to a series of teenets. Uh, he also rejected that. Still, I'm not supposed to be going on about... Um, Jakob Burma. And uh, a further point that I want to make at this stage, I'll return to this later on, uh, is the kind of point that comes up in the, the history of science when you get the transition from Newtonian classical physics to Einsteinian theories of relativity. Okay? Uh, you know, according to... I don't, I've, I've forgotten all these formulae and things which I suppose I had drummed into me at one stage... Uh, when I was at school, but uh, the, according to Newtonian science, you've got this, the, the, the um, mechanistic explanation of the movements of the heavenly bodies on the basis of uh, attractive forces, which always uh, got, ra got raised eyebrows at the time when he produced this idea, because people said, oh, this is occultism, which in a way it is. I mean, where is this force? Where does it exist? But anyway, he posited this theory of forces and, and mass and distance, and on the basis of that calculated the, the movements of these things. If you go into relativity theory, um, the, the basis of gravity is not attraction across uh, distance between mass to, to lots of masses. What you have got is the um, attraction of uh, what would in Newton be the attraction of, of the planets replaced by the, something called the curvature of space-time. I think you need to get into the mathematics to sort that one out because you cannot speak of the curvature of space-time without, of course, placing space-time in space and time. The picture is a temporal-spatial picture. And so the curvature of space-time itself, which is the fabric which is holding that picture, is something different. If there is no space, you can't curve it. So the curvature is a mathematical concept. And one needs to go through to that to see what it means. But anyway, it's certainly not Newtonian force. Now, the point about this, the point that I wish to make about this, is that the Newtonian formulae work very well in a lot of instances. And they enable you to predict all sorts of things. So they have great predictive force. But if relativity is correct, they are not ultimately true. That is to say, they do not ultimately give you an account of things as they are. All right? So you, you can have formulaic statements, ideas, theories, which are effective, 
without necessarily being true in in this latter sense. And I think that's very important because ultimately it seems to me, and I think it seemed to Plotinus, all theories, all explanations, all systems fall into that category. That was what I think Parmenides was getting at. You cannot get hold of the universe and yourself, let alone infinitude, and zip it all up into a little case of some neat intellectual idea. It will always wriggle out and burst out before you know where you are. But it doesn't mean to say that these things are not useful and not effective. Now, I'll return to that in um, the the last lecture, when I want to try and pick all these things up um, uh, um, at the end. Um, and well I'll leave that there's one, one point there I think I'll leave till later on I was going to pick up the point of language but I'll, I'll come back to that later on let me now move on to Plotinus who remember considered himself to be a disciple of Plato uh, somebody who was simply carrying on Plato's work he was always rather baffled when people thought of him as something new he said no I'm not new and he was certainly reinterpreting and there were certain things in him which I think were new but as I said earlier I think the root was in Plato and Plato has been gravely it seems to me misunderstood or at least one particular way of looking at him has been foisted on him in the modern world Now, I'm going to start with an overview, but please remember what I've already said about this business of ideas. Whatever Plotinus is, he is not somebody who is touting a system of ideas around the place. So, um, in giving you a kind of overview of the way in which he's thinking, I am not trying to produce a cage for you to get inside and lock yourselves in. I am trying to produce a map which will enable you to orient yourself around Plotinus and around your own experience, ultimately, uh, and no more than that. But the map is not the experience. And the map is also a falsification. I mean, think if you take, think any piece of territory and you think of the different kinds of maps you can make out of it, maps that show all the dustbins, maps that have, have peculiar lines which are of use to geographers, maps which give you roads and junctions and things of this kind, but ignore other stuff, maps which, which give you other types of information about the uh, gradients and the, the, the relief maps and so on, uh, and the various kinds of vegetation and climate and so on. Uh, when you get a map, you get what they would nowadays call the extraction of information, you get an abstraction. And that abstraction enables you to find yourself or or your way around and to use the experience of certain areas that are being mapped. But it is not the thing that is being mapped. It is, there is a gap between it and the thing that is being mapped. It's a simplification and it's a falsification and it's an abstraction. Okay? So this is a simplification, a falsification, and an abstraction. I just want to give you a a, a brief overall idea so that you can follow um, what I'm talking about. I'm going to start on the one in a moment, if you're still up to it. Um, Plotinus started with the one. I'm going to draw this as a circle, more or less. I'm in Leonardo, as you can see. But uh, I simply because it's a useful symbol for infinity. Uh, the one was that which was beyond number, it was infinitude, um, I prefer that word to infinity, uh, a little could be said about it, I'll come back to all this in a moment, in Plotinus' own words. 
But uh, within the one, there arises self-awareness, which I usually draw as a triangle simply because it's, uh, it's a sort of traditional symbol for that kind of thing because it's got the three sides and they're all joined in one. And uh, self-awareness obviously involves three factors. It involves self, which is awareness, being aware of itself, which is awareness. So you've got awareness, awareing, awareness, okay? So you've got three in one. But the three in one are also, in some sense, distinct. Uh, I remember an, an Indian teacher speaking about this sort of area of experience and saying, imagine a great mass of silence. Great mass of silence. And then imagine arising in that great mass of silence simply the statement, I am silence. As soon as that statement is there, something is different. Not much. It's still silence, but something has changed. That is the distinction between the one and this area here, which in the, uh, it's the noetic world, but in the uh, translation of McKenna, it's usually called the intellectual principle. And uh, this is the realm of great beauty. It's, a, it's, a, it's manifest in the almost literal sense. Uh, manifest merely means you can, you can grasp it with your hand. In other words, it's, it is cognizable as an object, in some sense or other. And that is, that's where this level comes in. And then from that level comes out the, the world of space-time, which I usually, again, give as a, a sort of... Well, not very square, is it? A sort of square. But the world of the material cosmos and the world's soul. And this uh, cosmos which um, flows or streams out like light from, from, from this centre uh, is the world with which we are familiar or includes that. And I usually put four sides. You can, if you like, regard it as uh, space-time, the four aspects, the three aspects of space and the aspect of time, or you can regard it, if you, like, if you want, as the four Western elements, or you can regard it, if you want, as the four Western elements plus Akasha, which is the point where consciousness becomes matter, it's virtual space, without which this could not exist, so you've got a five there. But anyway, they were, they were, they were, that's the sort of stuff Keith goes in for more. But uh, that, that will give you some sort of uh, scheme for sort of finding out where we are. And uh, I do this simply because I want to start on the one. It's the, it seems the obvious place to start. And starting on the one, it doesn't really make sense um, if you aren't aware of these two, apart from anything else, the one is only one seen from a relative point of view. In itself, there is nothing, to, you can only have unity if there's something to unite, all right? So the, uh, the concept of one, the concept of unity, depends upon differentiation and multiplicity. If there is no multiplicity, there is no unity. You've got that which transcends unity. And Plotinus says that. He's very, very clear about these things, crystal clear. And he's not playing games of logic. This is the important thing. He's talking about direct experience. Um, how is the time going? I have to be out at half past, do I? It's truth. Um, oh, well.
Look, I'm going to launch in on this and see what happens. Um, uh, I want to start on the tightness on, on, on the one and knowledge. And um, the, the first question is, if you have got the one, which is beyond the subject of this relationship, how do you know it? How can you know the one? And uh, if you're moving to that level, you are moving into an area which is difficult and which Plotinus said was difficult. <coughs> I wonder if I got my quotations down in the right area. Let me see. The one is not to be known in, in the way in which you know any ordinary object. Um, no, I'll skip that. That's no time for that. I was giving you some stuff on the, on the intellectual principle at this point. Let me start on 539. The main source of the difficulty, this is uh, Aeneid 6-9, uh, chapter or section 4, the main source of the difficulty is that awareness of this principle, of the, the one, of the ultimate, comes neither by knowing nor by intellection that discovers the intellectual beings, that is, the kind of mode of operation of the mind that exists here, I'll come back to that next time, um, but by a presence overpassing all knowledge. In knowing, soul or mind abandons its unity. Obviously, if you know an object, that object is in some sense outside the knower. So if you attempt to know this by grasping it as an object, you lose it. Okay? So you cannot do it by operating the ordinary level of the mind. Um, and uh, I, I think that that, that that is clear enough, isn't it? The, um, uh, you, the only way to know it is by becoming it, which is only possible if it is the basis of your own intelligence. Otherwise it's not possible. But if it is the basis of your intelligence, then you can, in some sense, become it. And uh, this again is what Plotinus says, it's uh, the same in yet 693, the preceding section. We must ascend to the principle within ourselves. From many, we must become one. Only so do we attain to knowledge of that which is principle and unity. We shape ourselves into intellectual principle. And he, he made the same point in a letter of his, which... Uh, is quoted by space in mysticism and philosophy somewhere else. Um, uh, he said that uh, uh, you ask me how you may know the infinite, I answer not by reason, because reason is always dealing with objects. If you wish to know the infinite, you can know it only by entering into a state in which you are your finite self no longer. You've heard echoes of that, you know, losing the self to find the self and that sort of stuff but they're not usually interpreted in that sort of um, uh, context. 
the um, in that respect, you can compare the, the Upanishads. I can't remember which Upanishad is. Is it the Ten Upanishad? There's one of those where it says the same thing. You can know the ultimate only by becoming it. And if you become it, you go beyond the subject of each relationship. Now, what you've got to there is not the space called um, pure consciousness. That is, he said it was consciousness devoid of empirical content. That is, consciousness without the ego, without the act of knowing, and without object. Pure consciousness, in that sense. Now, if that is the ultimate, you are making an assumption to begin with that that is the ultimate. It's an assumption, and it's as well to remember that it is an assumption. The ultimate proof of the validity of the assumption doesn't lie at that stage. It lies later and can only be found by, by experiencing it, if it exists at all. And it's only fair to plumb into the limitations of one's own epistemology as well as other people's. Otherwise, you end up in dogma. Um, the next thing is, if it's like that, how are you going to describe it? But of course you can't. Any description is a misdescription, all right? You come back to the limitations of language. Any, any description is a misdescription. But uh, uh, let's have a look at, again, one of the, the bits, it's just next to the, one of the bits we've just had, where he talks about that. The unity, then, is not intellectual principle. It's not the unity of that manifest level, but something higher still. Intellectual principle is still a being, but that first is no being, but precedent to all being. Now, what he means by this is what Dionysius got at when he said that if you are going to refer to the world of flux, the world of subjects and objects, if you are going to refer to that world as being, then you can't really use the same term of the being of the one, because it is completely different in kind. And if you are going to use the word being of the one, you really ought not to use the same word of being in in the relative world. And that's what he means by this. So at this point, he's using being for that which is in the area of manifestation. And in that case, this is the source of being, but not being. All right? Does that make it clear? Everybody got hold of that? Right. I I don't want to be more abstruse than I can help. Um... It cannot be a being, for a being has what we may call the shape of its reality, which is a very interesting idea. A being has the shape of its reality. Think of really sort of gnarled characters who have grown to be themselves, you feel, or old trees that grow amongst rocks and winds. They have a character which kind of emerges from their nature, uh, that's what he's thinking of, the, the, a shape um, uh, which, uh, um, which is its reality. For a being has what we may call the shape of its reality, but the unity is without shape, even shape intellectual, because shape is a boundary. Right? Generative of all, the unity is none of all. Neither thing, nor quantity, nor quality, nor intellect, nor soul. Not in motion, not at rest, not in place, not in time. 
It is the self-defined, unique in form, or better, formless, existing before form was, or movement, or rest, all of which are attachments of being and make being the manifold it is. Okay, so it's beyond all these. And uh, do you know the four quartets, the Eliot? Um, uh, um, uh, How does it go again? I, I jotted it down as I was... I never remember things when I want them. It's neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity. That's you, you see. If you say not arrest, and you, and you, you, you um, uh, not not movement, you tend to think of fixation in terms of movement. But it's not that. It's beyond the dichotomy of movement and rest. Okay, that makes sense. Beyond these opposites. But how, if not in the in in the movement, can it be otherwise than at rest? The answer is that movement and rest are states pertaining to being, which necessarily has one or the other or both. Besides, anything at rest must be so in virtue of rest as something distinct. As something distinct, unity at rest becomes the ground of an attribute and at once ceases to be a simplex. In other words, if it's at rest in the relative sense, it's in the relative, and it is not in the relative. Note similarly, and this is, this is an, an interesting point, part here, note similarly that when we speak of this first as cause, we are affirming something happening not to it, but to us. The fact that we take from this self-enclosed, strictly, we should put neither a this nor a that to it. We have a as it were, about it, seeking the statement of an experience of our own, sometimes nearing this reality, sometimes baffled by the enigma in which it dwells. Um, it's a marvellous passage. But you, you see what he's saying? Um, he's saying, first of all, that it is not, strictly speaking, a cause. If you speak of it as a, a first cause or ultimate cause or something, then you are speaking figuratively. You are applying the language of this area to that. It is not ultimately a cause. Because if it were a cause, it would not be the effect. And you have it also placed in time. You have it in sequence, but it is not in time. Okay. And I would point to two things in this connection. Sorry, I must shut up. But one is Shankara, who said exactly the same thing. Uh, he said that ultimately causation is an illusion. Ultimately causation is not the reality. You got back to the sort of Newtonian kind of formulation. It works, but it isn't ultimately true. Okay? So cause and effect obviously work as a, an, an efficacious statement. They are valid. As an ultimate statement of reality, they are invalid. Because you are moving, if you are moving to the ultimate, beyond space and time. The second thing is language. He said we hover around it, trying to express it with our words. And it is an experience. But as an experience, of course, it is beyond the subject-object, beyond the flow of discursive time, therefore beyond language. Again, I think of the Upanishads where they say that it is not language, it is the root from which language comes. And this I want to come back to later on because it has a bearing again on a lot of modern 
interpretations of knowledge and uh, language as code and things of this kind, which are inadequate, I think. They are very good, very sharp, very helpful and very valuable, but inadequate. And then the, 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 the final point I wanted to make about this was that the, um, this actually parallels some of the things that Hawking said in that brief history of time. Yeah, you, did you get through that? It's quite an interesting book. Again, he's very crude when he gets onto metaphysics, terribly crude. Um, um, uh, he's quite good in, uh, in his own area, he's very good. But uh, he said that in his scientific world view, causation existed only within the cosmos. It was intra-cosmic that you could not speak of the cause of the cosmos, because if you moved out of the cosmos, you moved out of the area of cause and effect. It's interesting that he should come up from an objective study with a similar sort of idea. If he had been able to think of the more spiritual aspects with greater freedom, he would have produced a magnificent work, I think. Um, And then I'm going to fling a couple of quotations at you more or less close up with, yes. Um, really is going to finish. Your torment is almost over. You know, it's like the dentist. You'll feel better afterwards. Um, the first is this. Think of the one as mind or as God. You think too meanly. Use all resources of understanding to to conceive this unity. And again, it is more authentically one than God, even though you reach for God's unity beyond the unity of the most perfect you can conceive. For this is uh, utterly a self-existent with no concomitant whatever. This self-sufficing is the essence of its unity. Something there must be supremely adequate, autonomous, all-transcending, most utterly without need. Now what he's speaking of there is the sort of point which is made, in, if you want to go into religious terms, by the Christian mystics. Remember um, Eckhart talking about God and the Godhead. Well, the one is the Godhead. God, as knowable as an object, is on the manifest level. God transcendent or the Godhead is what is being spoken about here if you wish to go into religious language I would personally prefer to uh, avoid it it is um, what Jakob Burma referred to as the Ungrund it is what in the Indian tradition is spoken of as uh, Brahman Nirguna as opposed to Brahman Sadhguna the attributeless Brahman um, the ultimate reality and the the, the, the the final thing I wanted to get, these, these are all bits out of the last of the Enneads, which I was fiddling around with at the time. Um, paragraph, what I should this thing. Yeah, there we are. He, spe- he says that the one has no intellection. To what could its intellection be directed? To itself? But that would imply a previous ignorance. It would be dependent upon that intellection in order to, in order to knowledge of itself. But it is the self-sufficing. 
Yet this absence of self-knowing, of self-intellection, does not comport ignorance. Ignorance is of something outside, a knower ignorant of a knowable. But in the solitary there is neither knowing nor anything unknown. It is absolutely marvellous, neither knowing nor anything unknown. It goes completely beyond this process of knowing, which produces only an accommodation of the idea of it. Now, you've been very good at um, standing up to all this. Uh, very good indeed. Uh, what I propose to go on to in lecture two is this area here. It's the area of it's an area of um, fantastic beauty. It is the, the world of the divine light, if you like. It is the world of the self-knowing of the one, of the intelligible light of the Platonists. And that intelligible light is the greatest of all manifest realities. It is uh, supreme. And it is Ananda. I, I, I don't like using words like blissful. They sound disgusting. But uh, I, I once uh, spoke to some Indians about experiences at this level, and they said, "Oh yes, Ananda, Ananda." And, that, and that's okay. That's that term fits it. That's it's not been vulgarised yet. Um, uh, but it's this area here, and the nature of, of knowing, the nature of individuality. Uh, all those things change on that level. And it is a level which is accessible to everybody. They choose to take the effort to go there. They don't have to go even, they have simply to open it within themselves. The third lecture, I want to look at nature and the world soul, this area here. Also a human psychology in Plotinus's understanding of it and of the motivation of thought and action. He's got a lot of things which are very interesting in that area and which really turn on their head the current values of society. And, and are, I, I think they're very, they're, they, they seem to me to be accurate, but um, you will have to judge that for yourselves. Then lecture four, I want to move to beauty and the function of the spiritual in art. As I said, I would deal with that. And he is particularly moving in that area. And I want to relate him to the two theories of aesthetics in Plato and Carson. And then lecture five, I want to come back to, to some extent, where I started from, and I hope in Eliot's words to know it for the first time. I want to turn to the nature of holistic knowledge and to the limitations of modern epistemology and to the question of the reform of education. Because unless we reform education, we're done for. And it was my hope from the very beginning, which I fear may not now be realised, I various reasons, but I think it may not. But it was my hope from the very beginning that Temenos would be an independent university outside the ordinary funding systems, giving a living alternative to the education that is available elsewhere and producing students of such intellectual sharpness that they would be able to cut down anybody who opposed them without any difficulty. And that is necessary. And that is necessary. It's no use going in for a lot of sort of fudge and whatnot. You've got to have a sharpness of mind. Otherwise, it won't survive. It's got to be able to not only withstand criticism, but criticise in its turn when necessary.
not negatively, not destructively, but if you are going to create, you have to clear the ground first. And there is quite a lot of rubbish around masquerading as clear thought and dedicated, realistic education. So at that point, I will shut up. I mean, there are, we, we get thrown out. Oh, no, it's not too bad for me. It's rather good. Uh, yes, you, you, you can ask questions until we get thrown out, apparently. Yeah. Um, if, as your sample suggests, um, we are positing as something that might bring a in us, an unlimited one, then surely it must be true, and I, I'm sure you read, that the triangle of the square would be inside yes. the unlimited yes. one. Yes. And, 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 and this, this sort of world of changing relating would just give us some sort of analogical suggestion that the one might also be about relating. Um, and if there were, if we had any sort of peace, uh, if, if we are also depositing peace in the one, an experience of peace for us coming from the one, then um, if one would see that the triangle of the square was somehow transformed in the life of the circle, um, and the illusion is seeing the triangle of the square outside the circle, exactly. and um, as a um, Fritz Schoen has the idea that this would be because the one being unlimited, nothing related, needs to express itself in every limited as well as unlimited way, and, and therefore it is necessary to be in a state of illusion and confusion, so the one can get itself in every possible limited situation as well. But I mean, you, you may point if you agree with the strength of the square has to be inside, really. They would be inside, though I, I think I would reject Sean's idea of, of one having to do anything, or indeed being describable as loving relationship within itself. I would say you can re- legitimately, if you wish, regard it as the source from which loving relationship emerges, but, but, but not, not within itself. And uh, yes, the, 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 the great thing is how to use the one. If the, I mean, this was Aristotle's point when he rejected the whole idea of the one. Um, uh, at the beginning of Michael ethics, he said, well, where, where is this good? Show it to me. And what use is it? Um, and so he demanded that it be an object. And he demanded that it have a purpose. And of course it is beyond purpose and it is beyond the subject-object relationship, so it's a very vulgar <coughs> uh, request. Uh, but uh, that the one is or is not is of vital importance to us who are and are not. Because we can use it, not by affecting it, but by drawing out of it what is needed. So what, what you're saying is very important. It is the source of relationship. Without the one, relatedness would not be. Uh, and if you are able to realize the one within yourself, then relatedness is complete. There is nothing alien in any world after that. By the cosmos, in, in of, uh, I, I would mean not just the ordinary gross physical cosmos, but any world. Any world. There are many, many, many worlds. How many? I do not know. But I know that there are many more than people usually think. Many more. Yes? Uh, 
in the last country in Ukraine, mm-hmm. you, from what I remember, you, you mentioned God and the love. Yes, uh, Plotinus said that the one was, uh, if you think of the one as God, you think too meanly. Yeah. Had that idea of a sort of monotheistic God crystallised? Oh yes, it was around around at the time. Yes, it had. Um, And of course it had always been there in in, uh, Greek, because it's a bit like the Indian tradition. The Greeks tended to flip from the gods to a reference to God. Uh, leaving, I remember when I first came across this, leaving me rather baffled because I didn't know quite how they sort of managed to flip from Apollo and Aphrodite to a discussion of God. But then that was because I was brought up in a tradition where God was thought of as a particular form, as a particular entity, as dogmatically defined. Um, uh, if you think of, uh, rather in the Indian tradition, of God as uh, polymorphous, then you get something near what they, they meant, and then it gradually crystallised down to one sort of formulation. But yes, it was there. But the, the, the thing about, uh, as soon as you form the idea of God, then you have formed something which is a definite concept, and which is there as an object. And indeed, many theologians hold that it must be known as an object, and so on and so forth, and you limit God to um, uh, uh, this sort of level at best. Yeah. I mean, I find for that reason I understand more better as a kind of zero and no yeah, thing exactly. rather than one. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's important that you should mention that. I, I've forgotten to mention that. Of course, if you're going to think in terms of number, this, this what is called the one, would of course be a zero. But you must remember that the Greeks and Romans didn't have a zero. The zero was brought from India much later by the Arabs. So, um, it, the, I mean, it would be the Indians who think of zero, wouldn't it? <laughs> but but uh, uh, as they didn't have a zero in their mathematics, the one was the nearest they could get to it. And that is why, uh, I'm, I'm sorry I have skimmed this in a way, but what can you do? It would really take a long time to go through all these passages. But Aquinas does uh, specifically say in one of the Indians that when he says the one, he does not mean the one as a numerical unit. He means that which is beyond number. So he is specific about that, but he had no zero to symbolize it. But you're right, absolutely right, absolutely right. That's how I'm thinking. Um, yeah. 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 Yes, exactly, exactly. The unity which is not graspable as an object is the origin of the unity which is manifest uh, in eternity. And um, in the Indian tradition, in the, the drum of Shiva Nataraja, that is what it is. You know, the drum of Shiva Nataraja, it consists of uh, a double cone. And the one cone is the cone of the absolute, and the other cone of the, the transcendent, the other cone is the cone of the relative. And to get from one cone to the other, it passes through the point value. And that point value is the, is the, the seed value, and it's the value of total unity. 
And that is the drum that Shiva beats for the cosmic dance. Uh, and yes, that you, what you're saying is extremely profound. I, I, there may be something in Plotinus on that. If there is, I've, I, it slipped my mind at the moment, but there could well, very well be something like that. I mean, he's got so much in him. Uh, but I, I can't remember him putting it quite as clearly as they do in the Indian tradition, but uh, it, it is there, yes. You notice that I'm making these glib parallels between the Indian tradition and Plotinus. I don't think they are glib, because I think they are both talking about reality. The ways they formulate it are different. There are differences in emphasis, and sometimes differences in understanding. Uh, but it's as Plotinus says at one point when he's talking about these things, he sort of throws up his hands and says, well, we, we can't really use language. And he says, we distinguish and separate, divide, the better to understand. So you divide in order to understand, but in order to understand, you have then to subtract the division. <laughs> All right? That's it. Um, these are words, 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 words. But the value of these words is how difficult is it to find this in this modern world? It exists. There is a doorway to it. If you don't even know that the doorway is there, how can you try and open it? You might be lucky enough to fall through, but it's not awfully likely. Most of us have to go and look. And if you're going to go and look, you've got to feel there's something worth looking for. And that is what all this guff is about. But at the end of the day, the guff is only guff. You have to leave it behind, outside the door, as you go through. There's a map, isn't there? A map, yes, it's a map. And once you get there, you don't need it. Ah, you see, that's what he meant. (laughs) (laughs) And there you are. But maps are very useful things. Very useful things. But to be content with a map is useless. I mean, I always think of the Hogarth... uh, Distressed poet, you know that particular engraving? The distressed poet, distressed in the 18th century sense of being poverty stricken. He's been done for debt, he's got no food, his only pair of breeches are being mended by his wife while the milkmaid harangues them with a long bill and so on. Uh, and in the middle of all this, there's this poor distressed poet trying to write a poem. He's trying to write a poem which is called Of Riches. And behind him, there is a map on the wall which is marked a view of the gold mines of Peru. <laughs> um, I mean, that is, that is really, if, you, if you're content with the map, that's where you are. You're content with a view of the gold mines of Peru and writing a poem of riches while you've got no money. Uh, it's no use. You need the reality. You don't need the map. But the map is jolly useful in its place. Jolly useful. What would you say to someone who is a beguiled by a particularly beautiful map? I would try to, gently, if they were really beguiled by it, I would try to lead them from a beautiful object to beauty itself. That would be a little Donnick way of doing it. Beauty that is eternal which can be known only by uniting with it. The analogical language is valuable in relation to telling us that there might be a sort of unlimited mind. Oh yes, it has its place. It has its place. But it's necessary always to warn against, uh, in the modern jargon, the reification of the language, for making it into a theme. I, I do... 
I have perhaps overstressed that, but it's so easy to turn the Timeless or anybody else into a nice system maker and his work into a nice system of ideas, at which point it ceased to be of any use to you. And when we meet the saint of any tradition in Buddhist, sincerely grateful for Chinese at all tricking or a similar thing in the Sufis or Christians or whatever, North American Union, it's then that we realize what we can't understand, that there is a sort of spontaneous, unconditional, compassionate love that goes with peace. Because we need in people what we can't think about, I think. Even before you get anywhere near a person like that, when you're somewhere away, the thing that hits you first is a great wall of intense peace. That is the first thing that comes. And then if you speak to a person of that kind, you can get the speech opening into an infinite sea of compassion. I prefer compassion to love because love always owns and it's always attached to a lover and a beloved. The ego is there in full force. Compassion is without that. And so I prefer to speak in terms of compassion. And compassion and wisdom are the greatest values in human life, it seems to me. You need both. You need wisdom to be beneficially compassionate. And you need compassion to put wisdom into operation. They have to go hand in hand. They are perhaps ultimately the same thing. Is it, do, do, we are okay still, are we? I, we're not okay. We need to we need to we, we need to throw ourselves out before we get thrown out, I think is Stephen's general message. Well thank you very much. I you made a very valiant attempt to keep up with all this. I, I hope it's not been too overwhelming. Um, you are I I do my best to make it clear. Well, thank you, Peter. You have reminded us, Peter, of what Temenos is meant to be from beginning, and please God, still may be, of a university of... uh, reality we've tended to lose sight of the object because of the sheer difficulty of surviving but I think it's well that we should all remind ourselves that that is the ultimate purpose of Temenos to be a small, modest seminal university to sow the seeds of true knowledge and wisdom in a world which has lost its contact very largely in the academic world. Well, you know the academic world. No, I don't. Yes, know. I know it. <laughs> I know it a bit also, true. also knows me, I suppose. And uh, always get on. let us work towards, let us, let us pray that this may come about. And thank you, Peter, for reminding okay. us of what we are really attempting to do in the first of this extremely important series of lectures. I feel that this has opened our, our, our term with just as it should be. Very kind of you to say to me. Thank you very much.